Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Dr. Rungzan Samrungraj is a technology and analytics leader with more than 15 years experience in product development, design, and optimization. He's held senior level positions at Pitney Bowes, City, and Bridgewater Associates. He also launched hardware and software systems generating nearly $1 billion in gross profits. He's a dynamic leader with extensive business knowledge and the ability to maximize the effectiveness of his team. A Six Sigma black belt, Rungsen is a PMP certified and hold a PhD in operations research. As COO for Satisfy Labs, Rungsen manages the human teams behind the Satisfy AI platform. And I am especially um, excited to, to learn from you today. I just came back from a, uh, an event called Abundance 360, where AI was really on the forefront of everybody. So Rungsen, thanks very much for being on the Second Command podcast. Cameron, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, no, this is great. So tell us a little bit about what Satisfy does, just so that we understand, and also um, even maybe give our listener just a, a real preview as to what AI is, because I think people think, um, you know, we're getting, we're, we're all getting introduced to these terms around robotics and AI and artificial or um, augmented reality and virtual reality. Kind of give us your, your niche and what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So Satisfy Labs is an answer engine that powers chatbots, voice experiences, messaging apps, robotics, and, and website forms, really to provide an answer to all customer questions in real time. So imagine all the best qualities and knowledge across your organization wrapped up in one digital presence that can immediately learn new things, and it always provides back the perfect answer to any question. So for our clients, the result is increased online and in-store sales, better customer experience, deeper personalization, and higher NPS scores. Now, it, the way to think about it, like very, uh, one of our most common clients are, are in sports. And so we started there. And so imagine you're at the stadium and you're walking around and you have questions about, you know, what, what, what can I do with my ticket? Where can I eat? Where, you know, what what kind of things can I bring in the stadium? That's the sort of thing that you can ask our AI that lives on your phone. So it's like having the perfect employee available at the touch of a button. So, so this is where the computer is kind of answering all of our questions and not just like, hey, Siri, you know, what's the temperature in Florida? But it can start having a discussion with us, correct? Yes, it can. And, and the, the way that we differentiate from services like Siri or Google or Amazon is that the content that we're providing is really it's, is hidden uh, most of the times from these types of, of platforms. So the thing about asking when you're inside a store or when you're in a stadium, that's the sort of information that those uh, services like Alexa and Siri can't answer. And also, the other important thing is that these are the answers that the business wants the customer to get back, right? As opposed to generic search results. This is the official approved answer. And also uh, the answers are geared to who you are. So over time, your interactions with a particular client um, are known. And so they can know your preferences or they can have uh, special information about you. And so you'll get back uh, an answer that's more relevant so to this who is, you are and your experience. 
So this is not really the computer figuring it out, is it? This is more the company is putting all the answers in and then learning from the customers and, and embedding more and more question and answers later. Is that kind of how this gets built out over time? Yes, that's, that's, that's a way to look at it. So there's definitely a beginning, there's a beginning point where there's a, a we call a corpus of information and that body of information evolves over time with, okay. with our, our client's help or just organically, depending on the type of questions that, that get asked. So I first heard about something like this. I'm going to call it AI, but this would have been, I want to even say 30 years ago, I heard that Ray Kroc, who, who really grew McDonald's, he wasn't the founder, but he kind of took it from the few locations to, into what we know of McDonald's today. But he wanted to have all of his thoughts and all of his answers recorded so that when he died, his franchisees could still ask him a question. And he yeah. kind of recorded that. Would that be kind of the initial genesis of what AI might be today? Yeah, absolutely. So there are certainly, the, and we've had certain clients come to us with exactly very similar phrasing. It's like having having some expert's brain available uh, anywhere so that uh, you know employees could ask and and get the and get the and get the right answer. So does this does this tool? obliterate coaching as we know it today? Like, will we, if we roll the camera ahead 20 years, can, do you think that we can get to the stage that, you know, a business coach can, can just be replaced by a computer because the computer can understand our, our ideas or our. I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. And if anything, this is the type of technology that helps coaches, right? So when we talk about, you know, we talk about your businesses and, and the, the challenge is always scaling. That's what this does, right? So this is the ability for one coach to be able to reach a hundred times larger an audience than uh, on their own. And so give us an example of how that would work in the coaching. Cause I've been thinking a lot about it, wondering, I'm like, I'm glad I'm 53 and not 35 in the coaching space because by the time I want to get out of coaching, this will be replacing me. Um, so how do, how do you see it then as, as being able to, I guess, leverage one-to-many versus the one-to-one -one coaching? How would, how would a coach use this technology? So one, one example I'll use is one of our clients runs a um, very large tournament. And so this is actually how the service evolved. Originally, it was meant just for... Um, guest facing, right? For the, for the people coming onto the tournament to be able to get their questions answered. Mm -hmm. But what they found is that their employees were using the service just as much as the, as the, uh, the guests were, so, meaning that there was no one repository where they could go for, for answers. And so they ended up using the service themselves. And so they actually, management actually deployed the service on iPads to their employees across the grounds. And it's something that they're continuing to expand. So, when we talk about leverage, that's the most obvious kind, right? So again, just having, being able to access your coach or your boss at the, at the touch of a button to be able to say, hey, you know, I've got this question. It could be something arcane that maybe comes up maybe once every week. Mm. But, uh, but the thing is, when you're talking about a large organization and that, that type of question comes up frequently. And so again, it's just the same question answered uh, over and over without actually taking human time. Wow. So this, this is like the autonomous vehicle is going to put drivers out of business. AI is really going to put call centers out of business. I think, I think the, or it'll replace know, the hesitate. human component. It, it will certainly, it will certainly lessen the reliance on that. And you know, it's one of those things, Cameron, just, we always have this conversation with clients and 
with AI, right, it's a very touchy subject in terms of are the machines coming to take our jobs? And so there, you can't ignore the fact that AI will do a lot to automate, you know, repetitive tasks mm -hmm. that we won't need humans for. But at the same time, I think the, the general positioning that, that businesses want to use is that AI is coming in to, to lessen the burden, to let people do more valuable things. Yeah. Oh, right? I focus less on the, on the, you know, in the, in the weeds type work. I'm not even mind about it. Like I, I can't imagine uh, a male or female sitting at a desk and a computer with a headset on and having to answer the same question 70 times. I think I would want to kill myself. Like I would <laughs> be quite do. happy. Right? I would be quite happy. Like it's almost like I, I feel bad when I'm in a big building going like, excuse me, where are the elevators? And the guy going, they're over there. Like it's the same <laughs> question, right? Um, so no, I'm not, I'm not worried about AI coming in. I'm kind of excited about where it takes us. And I saw... I think it was Google's AI because um, there's different companies are building these backbones like Satisfy is correct. Mm -hmm. And that's right. Was it Google's AI that did the, uh, the haircutting appointment that became kind of yes. famous? Okay. That's right. I was super excited about that. I think I saw it at the Ted conference two years ago and I was just like, this is awesome. Like what a, what a really cool, I guess, opportunity to leverage this stuff. How did you get involved in AI in the first place or how did you get into this space? So, we had, so my, my partners, my co-founders and I um, started this company about mid-2016, and it's because we saw this opportunity. We had worked for a previous startup that was in the customer service space, and uh, the focus was on creating a private Yelp. The whole idea was that you could complain, but complain to someone in, uh, in a position of authority that could get your problem solved, so that way it would, you know, you'd leave a happy customer and not put your complaint out on public channels. Well, mm -hmm. that was a, it sounded like a good idea, uh, but like all good ideas, once you put them into practice, uh, you see where the flaws are. And what we did was we pivoted. We saw this opening for automating customer service. And at the time, uh, there was hype, but not a lot of product. And so we were very quick to market and putting out a product focused on sports. And uh, that really that really was the the beginning of of an idea that we refined we basically followed you know the startup playbook in terms of hey find get your idea get a proof of concept out put a product out there find some uh, very passionate believers and then grow your business <laughs> and so starting with uh, one sports team uh, back in mid 2016 we now have over 50 uh, teams across the uh, five professional sports teams in the U.S., and as well as a league-wide deal with uh, minor league baseball, that'll be another 160 teams, Whoa, and then a host of other types of businesses that we've grown uh, grown into. Now, where did you have you raised money? Are you doing this all internally? Nope, we've raised money. So uh, to date, we've raised close to seven million dollars. And uh, look, we're, we're still small. We're still really scrappy. We think we punch above our weight. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very much like, I think, many entrepreneurs that, that go through this. It's, you know, you, you're successful until tomorrow. And mm -hmm. then, you know, anything could, you know, the whole business could blow up. So walk us through your, um, kind of, I guess, your view of, of building a company as a second in command and especially in the technology space when you're so deep with technology expertise, how do you struggle on the people side of the business? Where do you guys, um, 
kind of wake up and go, shit, like we've got the technology part figured out, but this whole people thing is, is bewildering. Where do you guys get bewildered, stumped, um, overwhelmed on the people side? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. That's the whole thing. It's like, why isn't AI farther along? Cause this people thing, man, it's just, <laughs> Always the that's problem. just too hard. Uh, you know, to, to go back to the first part of your question, when I think for me personally, as, as second in command, as COO, the important part was when we looked at, so I have two, two um, co-founders and the three of us. So uh, Donnie White's our CEO and then Randy Newman's our CTO. And so the way those roles came about, I think there's a, there's a, you know, there's always this interesting dynamic among co-founders and it's like, who gets to wear what hat. Mm-hmm. And amongst us, it was really, you know, it, there's, there's part of its humility. Part of it is, is looking at uh, what the company needs and being really honest about what your capabilities are. And I think that's a theme that runs through a lot of, of what your former CEO, COOs have come on and talked about. And that is recognizing, hey, look, in, in Donnie, he is a force of nature when it comes to sales. He's the great uh, face of the company. Uh, nobody's better than he is. Randy, our CTO, has had so much experience building uh, large-scale uh, expert systems in trading. And so for me, it was, hey, I'm the guy that can be the jack of all trades and basically fill in the gaps, right? So it's understanding, hey, what is needed on the leadership team and mm-hmm. can I fill that role? And uh, to date in this in the two and a half years that we've been together, we've, we've evolved our roles, but it's still basically the same thing. It's just, you know, how, how we identify what needs to be done and who has to do it, who's best suited to do it. Uh, I think that's, that's always something that, that, that evolves. Uh, how do you guys, how do you guys solve, um, not disputes, but you know, in every business, people have got ideas and we've got to decide which ideas to go with. How do you make decisions as a, as a three, I guess, three co-founders, three kind of senior leadership team roles? Um, and how do, you, how do you engage in really good, healthy conflict as well, I, I, which I believe in? You know, we've always talked about this. And so there's a, a strong belief I have in, in terms of natural tension. I think that when you look at the, and, and amongst us, so we have the Donnie uh, representing, you know, managing, leading the company overall, but having, having his focus on sales and marketing myself on the operations implementation side, and also just the, the general numbers, the financial state, and then Randy is the technology guy. And so I think in any, in any company, uh, and even well-performing companies, there has to be that tension, right? You, mm-hmm. you have to have that conflict. Otherwise, you know you're not doing it right, right? If you're all in agreement, then that's just, that's a huge blind spot. So for us, it's this natural back and forth of, hey, look, we need to sell this or and at this price and at this um, with this feature set and the technology side pushing back saying, look, it's going to take three times longer. It'll cost four times more. And so it's always how do you manage that interaction? And so uh, the three of us have have had long careers prior to startups. We're all uh, at least you know 15 years of industry experience prior to this in, in generally large companies. Mm-hmm. And so we understand that, look, there's there's a need for healthy debate. At some point, you at well, I'm sorry, I take that bad. At every point, you're always trying to narrow and close on a decision. And we empower uh, each of us in certain areas to make that final call. So look, Donnie's the CEO. He gets yes, the last call. And 
in almost every circumstance. But he's also the kind of leader that understands just like as others have, have talked on your show, you have to know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you surround yourself with people that are experts in other areas to compliment you. And so when it's a technology question, we'll defer to Randy. If it's something on the finance or operation side, they'll give more deference to me. Yeah, you're not going to abuse that power, but you're going to make the decision when it's yours. And you're also going to incorporate the ideas of and, and um, opinions of others as well. Nobody's ever going to just sit and completely abuse their power. They've given. So how did you um, walk us through how the three of you, I guess, make decisions on strategy and then how you then go off and divide and conquer? How do you, what kind of meeting rhythms do you use to, to facilitate that? What kind of strategic thinking process do you use to facilitate that? So the, uh, and, and my guess is that it's easier on the technology development side where you have a plan, you decide on the plan, you kind of execute forever, but it's a lot more fluid on the operational sides, I would think. Uh, or is it? I think that's right. Well, it's, so the, the way I would describe it is we have a, well, first of all, as a small company and as, as three founders who have been through a lot together, we talk all the time. Uh, we certainly make time for each other at least once a week and, and our best planning times are on the weekends. So, uh, you know, there's when we're away from the office and, you know, away from the day to day, I think is, is when we do our best work collaboratively, collaboratively as a team. And the general flow is, Hey, look, Donnie has the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. We then look at, okay, you know, how do we sanity test that in terms of does that meet the overall goal for the company, right? In terms of the, the, the revenue numbers or the other key metrics that we want to hit, right? So as a, as a SaaS company, there are certain metrics that we're always tracking uh, in terms of our growth rate, in terms of uh, certain costs that we're, we're incurring to serve our clients, right? So we look at, we look at how we're managing that company, uh, the overall trajectory of the company, and then uh, that's where I come in, right? So that sanity check in terms of, look, does this get us where we're going, where we need to go? And then Randy weighing in on, hey, what are the techno- technological hurdles that we need to actually make that vision come true? Um, you know, I always say, just as, a, as an aside, my, my mentor at Pitney Bowes, uh, who was in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, uh, best piece of advice, or one of the things he always told me is like, look, my job is to tell fairy tales. You know, your job is to make them come true. So that's how, that's how our interactions go, right? Donnie, Donnie is the visionary. And then he looks to Randy and myself to, uh, to make that happen. How big is your team currently? So right now we have uh, just under 20 people in the U.S. and uh, about a dozen people overseas. Okay. And then um, the dozen overseas, are they, rem- are they all in one country? Are they in one, one state? Are they remote? They're split between India and the Philippines. Okay. Um, and do you have any, any preference on hiring people that are in an office? Like, are you looking to have remote teams? Are you looking to have people that are, you know, fragmented living in home offices? Or do you try to get everyone into one office space still? You, you know, so I think this is, this is, it's funny, right? When you, when you ask technology companies, right, who should be at the forefront of, of processes, I'm sorry, um, that should be at the forefront of processes to, to really automate and uh, innovate the uh, the typical workspace. We still we still prefer people to be in in one location. I think they're 
we we haven't yet cracked the code on how do you make collaboration seamless when you're when you're in remote locations. That being said, we do have people that are that are remote, um, but I think right now it's it's there's just it seems to be less overhead in terms of getting everybody in one spot. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think we're going to see it happen with Gen Z. So the group of of kids that are currently kind of in the four to twenty two year old age group, I think, is Generation Z, and they're the ones who are constantly um, collaborating over video and over IP. You know, they're, they're playing games together. They're doing you know, Fortnite. And Absolutely. They're, they're, they're doing Minecraft and, and they've learned how to run projects and communicate and collaborate and, and, um, and be remote and have great healthy relationships with each other remotely. And kind of as adults, we're sitting watching it going, God, I wish we could do that at work, but we just haven't realized <laughs> we could. We just haven't tried it, right? You know, I, that's such a great, that's such a great insight because I, you know, I have two boys uh, like you, 15 and 17. Mm. And when I look back at, when I compare how they've grown up versus I do, the face to face is much less, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was out playing with, with kids around the neighborhood right. all day when I was growing up and in high school, just, you know, going out and driving, you know, getting a car and driving around. They're, they're much less inclined to do that. They definitely you know, they're on discord, they're on various other yeah. chat apps, you know, yeah. video. So you're right. I think they're ready for the virtual workspace. Well, and they, they know up. what's going on with all their friends. They talk about like, I'll be like, what do you mean you're going off for dinners? Yeah. We were just all talking downstairs. I'm like, Oh, you were all on some game. You realized you're all going to go for dinner and you all just like picked the location and went and did it. And they're all just, yeah, this is the way we normally work together. Right. So, you know, and, and I wonder, right. I think, um, whether or not it's hard to gauge, right? Whose experience is their experience just as rich as ours, or is it possibly richer because they they do, you know, they do different things. You know, they have different tools at their disposal, like sharing videos and sharing pictures, which we never did. Does that, yeah, yeah, you know, does that does that create a different type of life? Well, it's it's. I think I think it was Elon who was talking about Elon Musk saying that um, that kids today are more like cyborgs than than we ever will be like they already are partially like the the phone is already part of their it's, it's an appendage right that right whereas i pick up a phone they they are one already you know like they don't know life my 15 year old doesn't know life without the phone without everything exactly there, right whereas i i use it as a device for him it's part of his world already it's, it's kind of cool right um, right you know go ahead i, I was going to say just you know Tying back to something that you mentioned earlier, you know, about the with AI and the evolution of, and now we talked about the evolution of work. It's, it's something that uh, I think anyone who works in the AI space is both. You know, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of trepidation in terms of how the world's going to change. You know, don't know how soon it will be, but but I think for those of us that work here, we're pretty certain it's going to be a very drastic change mm-hmm. in terms of the type of jobs that will be available, the type of skills that are needed. Uh, I tell my kids all the time, I said, look, you have to be ready for what this world could look like, right? There's not going to be the level, the type of entry level jobs that we have. Those are going away. The whole idea of a cradle to grave employment where people would join a large company, start from the ground up, work there, work there 20 years and then retire. I think that that's already gone. And so, you know, with the advent of, of self, like you said, self-driving cars. Now with self-driving cars, people could potentially hop in their car at six in the morning, go back to sleep and let the car take them to work 
two hours away. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for you know our current arrangement of where people live? Um, that's if, as we said, maybe it's just all virtual workspaces anyway. And so these changes that will be happening um, will be, I think, will radically transform various aspects of our lives in ways that, you know, I think a few very smart people are figuring out. But uh, I think for sure, it just means there's a lot of opportunity for people who can get ahead of it. There'll be a certain, there'll be new types of businesses that will, that will be needed mm-hmm. based on these changes. Yeah, I think the autonomous vehicle is going to be the start of the next baby boom. I think that... Um you know, all the 22 year olds that now deal with a one hour commute are all going to be in the back seat having sex. <laughs> right. What else that's, would you do? Right. You've got, a- right? you got all that extra time. There's gonna be a whole <laughs> lot of people that are hopping in the back seat. I think it will be the next start of the next baby boom is all this free time that people have got added to their, uh, or maybe they'll just be better at computer games. So what, what <laughs> if you were advising, if you were advising our kids, like the 15 to, to, or even let's say the 15 to 30 year olds that have got a long career ahead of them work wise, where should they be starting to think about what should they be working on for their skills? How do they need to adapt? Any, any thoughts around that? So I think it would be the same advice I give to uh, our younger employees in the company. And that is, you know, look at your skills, right? There's certainly for us as a technology company where what we value the most are programming skills, uh, AI, AI engineering. I mean, those 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 skills are in such high demand right now. And so, for those that have the aptitude to do it, I think it's certainly a very safe career choice. I think those are the those are the types of jobs that will be in demand for the next decade or two. But even beyond that, just philosophically, right? I think it also goes to a lot of the things that you've talked about earlier on your show when CEO COOs come on and talk about what makes them successful. And that is, you know don't be task focused, right? Change your mindset. It's not about, uh, you know, ticking things off a checklist or, or just trying to, to get through, get through your day. It's it. When we look at, at how, what companies will value, it's going to be people who are goal focused, who, who understand what it's going to take to be successful and then do those things. And it may not be the exact thing you were told to do. Mm. And so those that, that have that um, level of autonomy uh, that understand, you know, that, that you have to, uh, you know, it's not, I want to choose my words carefully, right? It's not, it's not necessarily freelancing and I don't want to use something like try like thinking out of the box, but it's, you know, it's, it's not following a prescribed roadmap because that's the mm-hmm. whole thing. That's like there is when one. we talk about AI, right? When we talk about automation, that's the things that, that get, that get automated are those simple mundane tasks. But the things that will always be in demand are those, you know, those higher level thinkers, problem solvers, right? Things where, where you're taking on, yeah, when you're taking on, taking on, um, you know, non, non non-standard day-to-day routines. It's interesting. I think we're all really struggling with what it looks like because I think we all see it coming faster and faster in so many different forms. And I don't think that anybody's actually, thought through it yet. I'm excited about it because I believe in humanity and I believe in, in our ability to adapt, but um, I think it's coming really fast. Like it just feels fast. T- talk about your skills for a second as a leader where, you know, we've had to adapt, right? We're about the same age. We've got kids that are about the same age. You know, I remember when I was in first year, no, fourth year university, first, no, second year university, I had a typewriter. I typed up my assignments. Uh, yeah. didn't, I didn't have a personal computer until the year I graduated university is when I got my first um, 8086 and IBM. 
And so we didn't have, we didn't have technology back then. So I've really had to adapt. I mean, I had to learn how to, I remember when I was printing out a, a spreadsheet one time and I had to export from Lotus one, two, three, I had to export it into a software program called sideways one, two, three. So I could print it out in landscape format on a dot matrix <laughs> printer. Like that's, yeah. Yeah, that took like a half a day just to learn how to print out a spreadsheet. Um, how have you had to adapt your, in your career when, where do you think you've probably, um, where are you most pleased that you learned how to adapt in your career? Oh, no, no, those, those were certainly the days. I mean, those, those early days where you felt, uh, I think there was a joy in, in solving these types of problems, right? Because mm. there, there was no internet to go to or, you know, no Reddit page. No. So, uh, but I, I think, I think that served me so well throughout my career. This, this idea of, you know, being able to take something right? Take, take a part of a solution, but then figure out the rest. And, you know, not necessarily just using duct tape and bubble gum, but that idea of being able to, to um, do the small innovations and being able to, you know, not take, and take like what the established answer is and, and just, you know, try to go outside of that. I think when I look at the my earliest days as a consultant, I used to be a consultant for Booz Allen. I think one of the things that, um, and it was focused in operations. And so one of the things that I really uh, keep working on and something that in my role today, I just have to emphasize every day is the ability to context switch, right? So meaning as, as you are responsible for more and more, right? You don't have the luxury of setting aside a two or three hour block to work on a problem mm -hmm. and, and clear it off your plate. Uh, I find my day is cut up into half hour, one hour chunks where I'm, I'm rotating amongst a stack of eight or nine different uh, either problems or issues or just administrivia. And so to be able to, to quickly shuffle that and, and be productive, right? I think that's a challenge. Uh, I think most people find that, you know, not being able to focus on one particular thing for an extended period of time uh, makes them inefficient. And so I think for, for any senior leader, uh, especially with a wide portfolio, that's absolutely critical. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was talking to someone the other day about efficiency and I said, I really learned a lot. One of the only jobs I had was as a waiter. And I remember um, I was like 18 years old working in this restaurant and, and the efficiency I had to learn from being a waiter to actually get my stuff done and serve all of the tables and keep people happy and stay calm and you know, run and grab stuff from their car so that I could get an extra tip and make sure their drinks were perfect and taking stuff in it. Like the, there was so much to manage, but I actually think I learned efficiency back then. I learned how to prioritize. I learned how to, you know, if every time I walked into the kitchen, take something, something with me and I was leaving the kitchen, I'd bring something out with me. Like I just had to learn that efficiency. And I think that's always stood well with me. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's so much, so much going on in business. I don't even know where to, where to so is there an area that you're working on yourself currently Some, so I, or if, somewhere that you wish you were stronger in business? Oh, there are so many areas. I think <laughs> right. one of the things, <laughs> one of, one of, so I think for, for people like us, right. People who've had um, significant careers and we've been around, I try to make sure every step of my career I've found has been, an, you know, there's always been something that, that I take away. That was an incredible learning. And so uh, the short time I, I was at Bridgewater Associates, the hedge fund run by Ray Dalio. And so many people talk about his principles. And I think you know, there, there are 
there are many things I learned about myself in terms of what I'm not good at, but I think uh, the focus the focus on that in intense uh, self evaluation I think it's it's hurt it's painful, but I think so mm-hmm. necessary to to be able to be honest with yourself and say, "Look, mm-hmm. I'm not good at this uh, and and I think very successful leaders figure that out and say, well, I'm not good at this thing. So I'm going to find somebody, I'm going to hire somebody, or I'm going to work with someone who is. And so that, uh, they, when they can, own it and they don't blame other people for it. They, they own it, right? Like they, they actually self-introspect. Yes. I think that, I mean, I, I think that's a hard thing for many people to do, but, uh, you know, when you, when you ask the question, I, I say to myself, oh, you know, this whole, idea, when and I talked about, Hey, I'm, I'm really, proud of the fact that I am able to juggle all these tasks, but I say to myself, you know what? <laughs> I really could do, I could still do much, much better at that. I mean, I still find that I'm, I'm forgetting, uh, forgetting details on certain areas. It's just, I wish I had a post-it note that was continuously living on my palm of my hand. Right. I mean, just my dad does my could... dad. I think my dad's entire house is littered with post-it notes. I'm like, I got to go teach him how to use an app or something for this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's so much, so many moving parts of this stuff. Um, and I had a question on this too. So how do you prioritize all this stuff? How do you teach your team how to prioritize all this stuff? How do you, you know, if you know that efficiency and prioritization are key, do you, do you take that through the organization? Yes. So certainly we have several mechanisms internally that we do that, right? So we, we use a, a variation of agile so that on a weekly basis, we are, we're doing stand-ups, uh, we're doing a prioritization planning meeting and trying to make sure that we're keeping the most important projects uh, at top of mind and always keeping an eye on what's coming in the next week or month. I mean, my team will know. I always come in every Monday and say, look, is anything on fire? And then if the answer is no, then I can say, okay, look, so then what's on our list? Are we executing? Um, you know, we've committed to this set of projects. Uh, once we get through that, we're also looking at what's coming in the next two or three weeks after that, right? I think also there's another, as a, again, as you move up the leadership chain, right? The, your time that you spend focused on what's important now versus what's important Mm. a month, six months down the road, right? That, that shifts, right? So for us, for me personally, about 30% of my time is, is not focused on the now, but what's, what's coming down the pipeline in terms of either, either in terms of implementations, uh, but just as much fundraising uh, and our strategic plan. That's interesting. Tell, tell me a little bit about, I remember my, my question was related to Ray Dalio. So you got to work with him at Bridgewater. Where, where were his, like, if you were to distill the book principles down to kind of the core three that you most think, I guess, resemble the, the ethos at, at Bridgewater, what would they be? So I think the, the, the part I mentioned just about uh, intense self-examination, uh, right? So mm. it's, it's Darwinism uh, at, in a corporate environment. So the whole idea is that you you need to understand what you're weak at. You need to feel that pain, right? To be honest with yourself and honest with others so that you can improve. Because if you, uh, if you don't get that feedback, then you won't improve and then you, you're of less value to the company. And so uh, that would be the number one thing that, that I would, that I've taken away from it and uh, that I would emphasize to others. I mean, think of it, think of this in our, in our daily interactions, right? You're at a restaurant 
and you're eating and you're eating. How many times does it happen that you're eating this meal and you're like, eh, not really that good. Mm-hmm. Not 30 seconds later, the waitress comes by and says, hey, how's your meal? That's fine. What do you say? It's fine. Yeah. That's... It's fine. Okay. 99% of the time, yeah. that's what you say. And so that restaurant never gets any better. <clears throat> I, mean, I, think, I think the owner would want you to be brutally honest and say, you know what? That I, I'm probably not going to come back here again, or I didn't really like that dish. Yeah, wouldn't they have liked to have known? No, it's true. And I think I think you just touched on probably what is the key, probably the key element for any true business success is the ability for the the whole company, the company as a whole, and the people leading it, the people working in it, to self-examine. And if they do, they will grow. Right? It's it's that absolutely. And if they don't, they won't. And I think that's why I've always talked about um, introspection—the ability to blame oneself instead of an external factor. And I think the the true, the strongest leaders are the ones that blame themselves for the problem instead of saying that somebody else's fault or something happened or a global financial crisis. And um, yeah, I think that's that's huge insight for sure. Do you? Um, any thoughts around growing people at all? It's been kind of an area of obsession of mine. I've always said that, you know, the best leaders grow people. How do you, how do you focus on growing your team and growing your people? So there's, there's, I think two parts to that. So, right. There's the first part where you're looking for the people to add to your team, right? And we now spend a larger and larger amount of time doing that. And again, that's, it's that, it's one of those things. It's that painful trade-off where you have to view it as a, a vital investment because you're taking time out of your day, right? You have so many, you have so many limited hours that you can spend doing something, but you, you absolutely can't shortchange that. And we've learned some painful lessons around that. Meaning, you know, we thought, Hey, let's just, we'll, we'll rely on recruiters to screen for us. We'll interview these people. And you know what, if it, you know, we'll do like a, a an hour interview, we'll do a few sessions. If it turns out great, we'll hire. Them. And so yeah. we, we would hire fast. And uh, I think, you know, then, that leads to the second part, which is now that they're inside your organization, what are you going to do to invest in them to make them better or so, understand how they fit? So you're working, you're working around the need to even grow them and you're just hiring the right ones in the first place. There's that, right? So there, I think as a startup in our phase, right, you're not going to get around. You have to hire people. We're already, we're always fully utilized, if not more than that, right? Like mm-hmm. I think every time we hire people, we're saying, look, this is, we're a startup environment have to be aware we're not it's not a nine to five five day five day a week job Mm -hmm. Uh, we're customer focused so we're always having to meet our customer needs and our clients are the type of people that work uh on the weekends or or at night right they're a lot of them are sports teams a lot of them are retailers uh and so you know there i think there's an expectation um that is fair that look if you're going into a startup it's you know, this is, you're going to learn a ton, right? You're going, and you're going to grow a lot. So that leads to the other part, which is, you know, the opportunity for people who come into our company is that, look, you'll start out, you could start out just out of college. And then within two years, you're actually managing people. I think that's something that uh, if you went to a large company like IBM, yeah, that's not happening for 10 years. And so and so the the ability to to have all this concentrated learning, right? That's the opportunity, and that's also the downfall. That's that's the. There's a lot that you ask of your people to to learn and evolve in such a short amount of time, and how you provide that coaching 
so that they can be successful because they've never, for many of them, right, for, for a good chunk of our folks, this is their first or second job. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you make that time so that they understand that they're either doing well or not, and then to help them change path. So can you, can you uh, answer this one for me around people? You're, you're in a fairly competitive city. I mean, you're in New York, so you're competing against a lot of the other technology firms that are based in New York. You're also competing against all of the investment banking world that is based in New York. You're competing against a lot of the major head offices that have representation in New York. How do you compete for this war on talent, especially in the engineering and, and IT space when everybody wants to pay more? Like at some point you can't just pay more. How do you, how do you get talent in New York? Ah, that, that's a $64,000 question. No, it's, it's very difficult, but, uh, I think like anything else, you just have to, you find the right positioning for yourself and there's always going to be, uh, someone out there that whose circumstances fit what you're looking for. We position ourselves, Hey, we're, we're the we're this AI startup. We're in a hot space. We're growing fast. You can see the list of our clients. Uh, you come in, meet with us, see, talk to the other folks around, and they'll tell you this is you know our culture is very open. Uh, we're we're focused on on continuously you know punching the lights out. And if that's the kind of journey you want, right here's the opportunity for you. I think we try to be as open as possible. We can't compete with a Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. Uh, nor do, in nor terms. do you want to, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so the other part too is, is you know, we, we focus on, I, I personally focus on for my team, I focus on people who are early in their careers, who are coming out of college, either first job or, or maybe second job and say, look, I'm giving you the opportunity to join, uh, work with me. I've done a lot of this stuff. I will tell you all the tricks that I've learned over my career and you have the opportunity to advance at a much more rapid pace than you would if you joined a larger company. So you're really selling on the, the small rapid growth, the small company that is really, as you said, punching the lights out. Um, and also, so that's a real culture of like, we're all a players. And then I, and the AI space has got to be a key driver for you guys, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think every, I think every industry has to find those couple of things. I mean, when we were building, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we couldn't point to ourselves as a sexy business. We, we were in garbage. So we didn't have, we didn't have the AI thing. So what right. we pointed to was the cult-like environment, right? That incredible culture. Um, and we were hiring non-technical people. Like you could go work for a tech company and have great you know, company culture, but all the people we were hiring weren't tech people, right? We were hiring all the jack of all trades, master of nuns, marketers, the operations people, the just normal day-to-day -day business arts grads. And it gave them a chance to work in that amazing company culture. So we had to find our, our thing. I think that's what's, what's key. So I want you to leave us with one kind of parting note. If you were the, um, the 21 year old starting off in your career, what would you, what word of advice would you want to, um, have heard from yourself today, kind of from the older Rungson, who, what would you be telling the younger Rungson? Uh, besides winning lotto numbers, I guess, you know, there's, it's so funny. I, I knew you would ask this question. <laughs> so I, I was thinking through just saying to myself, Hey, 
you know, you always look back and say, if I'd done things differently, how different, you know, what would my life be? But your question is more like, so what, what's the one thing looking back that I want my younger self to, to focus on? And I think, I think, uh, again, in, in that, in that sort of, you know, brutal self-honesty, it's just like, look, um, it, not just work harder, right? But, but I think there's, for me personally, it's um, it's always looking at you know where am I where am I struggling and 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 not to not to dismiss that. No, I'm, let me I'm sorry. Let me start over. Just mm-hmm. when I look at 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 the the points of my career, I say to myself that were inflection points where, you know, one thing could have happened over another. I think when I look at the places where I failed, uh, it, it really, it, it wasn't, it was not paying enough attention to my, where I was, where I was, um, where I was weak. Meaning, you know, I looked at, ah, no, Cameron, I'm sorry. This is it's no, hard okay. to say. Is- uh, if I look back, if I look back on my career, there are numerous places where uh, I can say, "Look, I clearly failed." And so, when I when I I always, you know, again, past with my experience with Bridgewater, I've actually gone back and said, "Hey, you know, look, can I look at those places and be really honest with myself in terms of of what I did wrong?" And uh, you know. It, when I look at the, when I look at what I think the common theme was, it's, you know, just being, again, just being too overconfident, being blind in my own capabilities. And okay. so as much as I think, um, I understand like what politics are, uh, and how to interact with other people, it, it, it's something that, you know, I really wasn't that good at. And I probably still am not. And so I would tell my, I would tell my younger self, look, you know, you were always great in math. You were always great in science, and you, but that's that's just half the story. You know, the mm-hmm. other half is is how you interact with people and understand their motivations and why they may want to support you or look mm-hmm. want to stop you. Yeah, it's and interesting. I think that's a tough thing. There's so much around that introspection. I was telling one of my kids last night that. And this may be me mirroring a little bit or or taking some of my own biases and trying to pass these lessons to him, but he's really worried about going off to university and where he's going to go. And, and I said, you know, I want, I want you to know something. It, it doesn't really matter. Like at the end of the day, like he, he's not going to go to Harvard or Stanford. He's going to go to like a normal college, normal university. He's going to get a normal bachelor's degree. He's going to be a normal kid. He's going to come out. And I said, by the way, so was I, I got 62% at the only university that accepted me, maybe 63. Most of my classes I had to cheat at and, but I learned, I learned so much in university from being a part of a fraternity, from joining the clubs, from being on the ski team, from socializing with other kids, from living in residence and, and learning how to be on my own and that solving problems, balancing a checkbook, you know, and, and playing, playing in all these activities with these other kids. And that's where I learned. And all that stuff is more important. I said, no one's ever going to look at your transcript. But the reality is no yeah. one's ever, no one's looked at yours since you graduated you know, the A's or the A minuses or the B's or the B pluses 
I think a lot of the school system destroys the confidence in kids instead of helping us, right? Like for the, for the most part, 95% of the kids who go to school are not the A plus kids. So, right. you know, every day I would go and look at my grades and be like, oh, fuck another 72. Like I tried, like I studied all night and how come he got 96 and I got 72? Well, the reality was he probably studied all term and I studied right. 94. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this self-examination is hard, right? The other thing I think right now is that we're all just walking each other home. You know, none of us are getting out of this alive, right? This is just what we do to make money. Um, and I think every single one of us, you, and it was interesting, like our, our listener won't see it, but you were struggling to come up with that answer and it was real for you. You were really going introspective to see what that lesson would be. And I could see the pain of you having to even articulate it more for yourself than for us. And I think at the end of the day, every one of your employees is struggling with something today. You know, every one of yeah, my employees right. is struggling with something today. We're struggling with a relationship, with a disease, with a child, with our own insecurities. And I think we have to remember just to hold hands as we're, we're going through this too, because, you know, none of us are getting out of this alive and this is just what we do to make money, right? Yeah, no, right. I, that, you know, it, it's funny you end on that note. It's so important is that, right, there's more than just your career. There's more than just your work. And as human beings, what is it that we're, we're striving for? You know, what gives us satisfaction? What gives us happiness? That's, that's a tough puzzle. And I yeah. think everyone's journey is different for that. Well, I, I was listening to an interview this morning, a podcast with Jim Collins and Tim Ferriss. I've been friends with Tim for a long time. And, and I heard Jim talk about something to the effect of, you know, truly enjoying life is about spending time with people you like doing the stuff that you enjoy. And that's really what life is about. Now he probably said it, he did say it in a much more articulate way using words that were longer than the ones I use, but that's kind of what I'm it. Dr. Rungzan Samrung Raj, the COO from Satisfy. Thanks very much for sharing with us today. I am um, really looking forward to seeing what you build with Satisfy and the AI platform. And I also um, already sent over the link to your company to a friend of mine who's in the medical space. And we were speaking on the weekend about him needing to integrate AI. So maybe I'll make an introduction for you guys later. But thanks for sharing with us today. I appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. It's really, truly been a pleasure and an honor uh, speaking with you. Cool. Thanks, Ronson. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.